They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. In the early hours of March 18, 1990, two men dressed as police officers walked into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Art Museum in downtown Boston. They overpowered two security guards, duct taped them in the basement to a pipe and a workbench, and announced, gentlemen, this is a robbery. In just 81 minutes, 81 minutes, The thieves made off with 13 treasured paintings, including a couple Rembrandts from the lavishly decorated gallery, a staggering collection worth $500 million. This led to a a flurry of press attention. Uh, A $10 million reward was offered, but the stolen works have yet to be recovered. It remains the largest unsolved art heist in modern history. Now, whether you're a fan of art or not, a fan of art museums or not, does the desecration of a sacred place bother you a little bit? Well, if it does, then our story this morning should really upset you. 
Because we see how thoroughly the ultimate intruder can plunder a mind and soul and body that was intended to be a temple for the Holy Spirit. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Chapter 4, where we left off a couple weeks ago, ends with the disciples having just watched Jesus save their lives by calming a violent storm, asking one question above all else. Who is this? Who is this rabbi that has entered our lives and is in our boat? And as we turn now to chapter 5, we are still intended to be asking and answering that most important question. The story is bracing, it's bizarre. In fact, it's the longest and most vivid account of an exorcism, the casting out of a demon in all the Bible. We're going to look at it in three points. First, the entrance. Second, the encounter. And third, the evangelist. Three simple points. First, the entrance. We'll see that in verses 1 to 5. Second, the encounter. Verses 6 to 17. And third, the evangelist. Verses 18 to 20. First, the entrance. Look there at verse 1. They, that, that, that is Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, let's be honest with one another. This word, this location, is the kind of thing we just skim past when we're reading the Bible because it doesn't mean anything to us. I mean, for all we know, Mark is just saying, they left Capernaum and arrived at a nearby Jewish village. But in fact, this word marks a significant geographical shift because it's the first time in Jesus's public ministry that he has left Jewish territory. He's now arrived on the far side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in a region known as the Decapolis, a cluster of these 10 Gentile towns. And they don't just happen upon this place. It's not like Jesus is like, oh, what do we have here? Pagans. No, as we saw in the previous scene, this was his deliberate destination. Chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And here they are. Even a hurricane couldn't stop the journey. It couldn't capsize the mission because Jesus had something to accomplish. He had divine business to do in this most unexpected place. This may well have been the disciples' first time in this region, their first time to the other side of the lake, to, to this Gentile, unclean region. And little did they know, they had just escaped one kind of violent storm only to encounter another. Verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Mark now uh, double clicks, as it were, on a man with an impure spirit. And in verses 3 to 5, he describes the man before resuming the story. So if you 
jot things down in your Bible, you could put a parenthesis at the beginning of verse 3 and at the end of verse 5. Let's look at this parenthetical description of the man with the impure spirit. Verse 3, the man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So again, we've moved from a raging, wild sea to a raging, wild man. And neither of them, neither the sea nor the man can be tamed with merely human hands. This is one of the most graphic depictions of human misery in all the Bible. This is like the New Testament's Job. And frankly, it's, it's not just graphic, it's, it's kind of spooky. Many years ago, Megan and I lived across the street from a woman in a different city. We lived across the street from a woman with all kinds of mental health problems. The, the police often, sh often showed up at her house to take her away. She would always end up returning, but she was given to erratic, violent outbursts. She, she threw a Christmas tree through her front window into the front yard. One time in the middle of the day, I watched her walk across the street to a neighbor's house with a, a glazed over look and stick a kitchen knife into their tire before slowly making her way back home. Now, I'm not here to assess what role a mental disorder or drugs or demonic influence, or some combination played. But the point was that it was spooky to live so close to such an unpredictable and erratic person. Well, this guy is the ultimate spooky neighbor. He acts like a wild animal, and he's treated like one. The community has actually made the decision to bind him up, but he, he's developed this superhuman strength such that the iron fetters are no more effective than one of those paper chains made out of construction paper. He just breaks through them. He's in utter misery, screaming out night and day. Imagine trying to put your children to bed, hearing in the distance ear-splitting screams echoing among the caverns by the shoreline. He's screaming out in agony because of the inner torment he's experiencing from these demonic intruders. It's a searing picture of the image of God defaced in man. And it gets worse. Did you notice the shadow that has set over his life? Verse 2, from the tombs. Verse 3, in the tombs. Verse 5, among the tombs. It's the shadow of death. Mark wants us to see and not to miss that we are encountering here on the shore, along with Jesus and his disciples, a helpless and hopeless corpse. A, a dead man walking. This man in utter misery needs more than simply to be released from demonic oppression. 
The demonic oppression is bad enough, but this man most fundamentally needs to be raised from the dead. We are in an unclean place face to face with the ultimate unclean person. By the way, it's, it's worth just observing before we move on that no one in your life is a lost cause. If this guy wasn't a lost cause, you don't know someone who is. I guarantee the family member, the friend, the work colleague does not have a bleaker condition than this guy. Notice the statement in verse 4. No one was strong enough to subdue him. No one. And I think it's easy to read that statement and just want to think about his muscles, right? Just kind of imagine this ancient version of the incredible Hulk. But really what this statement is communicating is the futility of all human effort to help him. We'll think about this same idea next week when we look at Jesus encountering a, a diseased woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. There's that beautiful statement, Mark 5, 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she only grew worse. The diagnoses of the world aren't always wrong, but they're never comprehensively right. They, they, they never can get to the deepest root of our problems. I mean, some will say that the, the main problem facing humanity, especially as we think about evil in man, horrific crime and such, so some will want to say that, that, the, that the biggest problem is psychological. It's broken minds. Or others will say, no, 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 it's, it's sociological. It's broken communities. Others may say, no, it, it's actually physiological. It's, it's broken bodies. No, I think it's educational. It's, it's broken systems of learning. And there's truth to all of that, but the Bible insists that the most fundamental problem facing us is spiritual. Our greatest problem is complex and comprehensive. It's multifaceted. But we in the modern West, we tend to encounter a story like this. And we can be tempted to kind of scoff because... A story of ancient demon possession can just seem laughably primitive. We're advanced. We, we have modern medicine. We have technology. We, we can access anything in the world on the glowing rectangle in our pockets. We're doing just fine. Thank you very much. We're too sophisticated for an outdated, outmoded story like this. And just the idea of devils today strikes many modern secular people as primitive. Perhaps you are here and you have a hard time coming to grips with the idea of 
angels and demons. It just seems like something straight out of a fairy tale. Do you have a better explanation, though? For a man walking into a school in Uvalde, Texas and targeting young children? Again, I'm not reducing it to one factor. I'm acknowledging that there can be a multiplicity of interlocking factors. But if you're missing the spiritual one, if you're missing the demonic one, then you have the reductionistic worldview, the simplistic worldview. Life is more complex and complicated, too complex and too complicated to omit the demonic from our calculus. Mark's purpose, though, is not to provoke fascination and preoccupation with the demonic. He, is, he just assumes it. He just assumes the presence and power of demonic forces. In other words, Mark's ultimate focus is not on the chaos. It's on the one, the only one who can calm it. Number two, the encounter. Verse 6, when the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said, come out of this man, you impure spirit. This is a startling turn of events. The, the one who is the undisputed strong man of the region, who overpowers everything in his path, is now helpless at the feet of Jesus. In the previous scene, remember, we saw Jesus silence a storm. He talked to the storm as if it was a barking puppy. And the thing obeyed. And here... The mightiest man, the wildest man, the most erratic and intimidating man in the region has also taken on the posture of a puppy at the feet of the one who has stepped onto the shore. Notice, by the way, and this is one benefit of expository preaching, which we do here at River City Baptist Church, where we just make our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage. You start to see the interconnectedness of the various parts. Have you noticed in our study of Mark that some of Mark's highest Christology, which just means the revelation to us of who Jesus is, some of his highest Christology comes from demons. Chapter 1, verse 24. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In other words, they're agreeing with Mark, who in chapter 1, verse 1, told us that his purpose in writing this was to help us see that Jesus is the Son of God. And here in chapter 5, verse 7, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What's up with the demon's plea 
here for Jesus not to torture them? Well, it could be as simple as the fact that it's torture for evil to be in the presence of ultimate good. But the demons, if you notice, they don't only know their Christology, they also know their eschatology. In other words, they know their own end. In, first, in 2 Peter 2, and I love quoting Peter because remember, he's Mark's primary source for this gospel. In 2 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter writes, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but put them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Held for judgment. Which is why in Matthew's account of this story, the demons ask Jesus, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know that they are face-to-face with the one to whom has been delegated their own future judgment. And notice that while the demon appeals to a higher authority in the presence of Jesus, I mean, there's no swagger in this demon right now. He appeals to a higher authority. Notice, he says, in God's name, don't torture me. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't need to appeal to any higher authority because he is the higher authority. He simply says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. But see, the same way the demon felt, don't torture me, don't torment me, is the same way he's going to try to make you feel that if you come to Jesus... He'll just torment you. You'll lose your autonomy. He'll just lock you up in a prison of his commands. You'll be a slave. You won't have any freedom. Your life will be a living hell. That if you surrender to him, he will destroy you instead of heal you. And that's an ancient lie from the pit of hell. No, if you come to Jesus, he won't destroy you. But there will be times when it might feel like that's what's going on. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene in the voyage of the Dawn Treader where the little boy, Eustace, who is famous for being insufferably arrogant and annoying and sulking about, making everything about him. He happens upon a dragon's lair. And in his greedy heart, he starts to want all of the dragon's treasure. And he he puts a gold bracelet on his wrist and falls asleep only to wake up as a dragon. C.S. Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Now, when he wakes up, at first Eustace feels relief at being the biggest thing around. He's got visions of grandeur. But he quickly realizes that he is in a prison of his own making, that, that he is cut off from life and friends And so he takes his claws and he starts to peel away his skin, but he can't do it. Every layer that comes off, there's just another layer beneath it. He cannot remove his dragonish 
nature. He can't take care of the problem himself. Listen to how Eustace, this character, describes what happens next. Then the lion, that's Aslan, then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And then Lewis summarizes. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. The undragoning of Eustace, of course, is a kind of parable of the surgery that Jesus performs in a chaotic and calloused heart. Friend, don't listen to the devil's lies. Jesus is not going to destroy you. He's not going to torment you. He wants to heal you. He has disembarked on the shore of your life to restore the image of God in you that has been defaced and corrupted by sin. But the process of healing will not be painless. Look at verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A legion was a Greek term referring to a massive unit of soldiers, three to 6,000 of them. The image here is, is of, a, of a hostile army occupying this helpless man. The, the, the reign of terror in and over his life. And here legion, it seems, is the captain or the spokesperson for all the demons who are inhabiting this man. And the reason he begs Jesus not to banish them from the area is because They are unclean spirits fit for this unclean place. And speaking of unclean things, verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came down and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This is, without a doubt, uh, the most 
bizarre story, I think, in the New Testament. I mean, it's so bizarre, I just want to submit to your consideration, if, if you're a skeptic of the Bible, a skeptic of Christianity, this is so bizarre that it's not the kind of thing anyone would have made up or included unless it actually happened. It raises a number of questions. There's no way I can answer all of them in this message, but I just want you to notice a few things. First of all, we don't know why the demons request to be sent into the pigs, but as I said, it probably does have to do with the fact that in the Jewish mind, pigs were the preeminent unclean animal, and therefore were a fitting home, a fitting host for these unclean spirits. Notice also that Jesus doesn't drive the demons over the cliff. Read your Bibles carefully. Jesus grants the demons' request to go into the herd, but it's the demons who, in all of their destructive chaos, accomplish in the pigs what they had been doing in the man, and therefore who drive the pigs in a frenzy over the brink. Notice also this little irony. The water that had almost claimed the lives of the disciples is now the grave for this herd of pigs. But the most striking thing in this scene is not the running of the pigs. It's the giving of the permission. I love how simply Mark puts it. Verse 13, after the demons make their request, Jesus gave them permission. He gave them permission. It is not unclear who is in control in the pages of the gospel according to Mark. And this should be a great comfort to us because even in this bizarre story, even though it raises some questions, we want one answered and may not get answers to this side of heaven. It's clear what it does do. This passage reveals that the scope of Satan's power is limited. Praise God. He may harass us. He may he may chase us down, he may torment us, but he is on a leash, a divine leash. And did you know, by the way, I don't think we think about this very often as Christians, we, we, we rightly talk about fleeing the devil. But did you know the Bible says that you can make the devil flee you? You can make Satan scurry. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a promise you can take to the bank. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you've ever watched a nature documentary, you know that Wolves and lions and, and other predators target struggling and straggling members of a pack. And one of the ways that you can resist the devil so that he will turn away and run is if you resist him in the context of a pack. 
And that's really what church membership is. Church membership provides the kind of safety and security that we need in order to make it in a Christian life. There is a sense in which church membership is a corporate resistance project. We're not just individuals resisting alone. We are a church, an embassy of the high king of heaven, resisting the devil together. And as we resist, as we stand firm in the faith, as we anchor our lives around God's word, he will go find other prey. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. It's not really what we'd expect to read. I think we'd expect, then the people began to plead with Jesus to stay and never leave and massive revival broke out. Praise God. A herd this large probably didn't belong to one person. This was probably the combined herd of the whole village. I think the the people are freaking out for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they have just seen an otherworldly power enter their lives, enter their world, and tame the untamable. They've tamed this infamous man. But it's almost certain that they're also upset because of the economic hit that 2,000 pigs would have represented. It's not wrong for them to have been sad about the lost income. It's not wrong to be concerned about the lost capital. But what's troubling is that they evidently care far more, far more about the destruction of the herd than the restoration of this man. And look at the restoration. He's sitting there. How calm is he? As calm as the wind and the waves had become. He's sane. He's clothed. What a picture of the comprehensive change that Jesus, and only Jesus, can bring about in the bleakest of circumstances. If the previous scene on the lake displayed Jesus' power over natural creation, I think this scene here previews the new creation. When everything will be set right, when chaos will bow to order, when evil will be exercised, cast out forever. The entrance, the encounter, and third and finally, the evangelist. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The guy's response is entirely natural. He wants to be with the man who has just utterly altered his life. 
raised him from the dead. And Jesus doesn't correct him. It's not a wrong question to ask. But Jesus does look at him in the eye and in mysterious love say no. Has he ever done that to you? This is hard to get our heads around, isn't it? (laughs) This is another reason why I think the Bible is true, why I think Mark is recording actual history, because, again, it's not just the way any human would write the story. Notice Jesus, the hero of Mark's gospel, listen to how he behaves. He grants the request of demons and denies the request of his earnest new follower. It seems inexplicable, backwards. But, oh, beloved, don't assume that a no from Jesus, a not yet from Jesus, to your most earnest pleas, is a sign of his disfavor. Sometimes he loves us best. With that very word. Sometimes the love of God sounds like the word no. One sign you're maturing as a Christian is that you're able to look back on your life and thank God for unanswered prayers. Where would you be today if God had answered every one of your prayers? That's not to say there aren't very legitimate prayer requests that he may answer in due time in accordance with his will. But don't assume that a no or a not yet means he's forgotten you, that he doesn't care. So why does he tell this guy this, though? Why does he say no? Why does he say, you can't come, you've got to stay? Well, it's because he has a job assignment for the guy. Go home to your own people, to, to the Gentiles, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, we're used to, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus healing people and then instructing them what? Shh, don't tell anyone. But here he's like, please run your mouth. Go, talk about this. And the reason is that we're in Gentile territory. There's not the same risk of misunderstanding among Jews for, for some kind of political, Jesus as a political savior in Messiah who's come to overthrow Rome. So Jesus says, go back to your own people. Go back to what I've delivered you out of and bring others to. This tortured, hopeless man It's just like God, right? Of all the characters in your New Testament, he chose this guy screaming in the night, bloody, naked, cutting himself. He chose that guy to be the first Gentile convert and the first Gentile missionary. And just as the sea obeyed Jesus and as the demons obeyed Jesus, now he obeys Jesus. Verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is why it's so important to read our Bibles carefully. 
Don't miss the parallel in verses 19 and 20. Did you see the same phrase in verse 19 and 20? With one significant difference. Verse 19, here's the command. Go home to your people and tell them how much blank has done for you. Who? The Lord. Verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell how much blank had done for him. Jesus. Jesus is the divine Lord. Mark has been driving this home in overt ways and subtle ways ever since the very first verse, as we thought about earlier, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God and the Lord of the world. Now, this point is titled the evangelist because of the guy's charge, his commission that he's given. Just imagine for a second, this guy re-entering civilization, walking into town for the first time in years. Do you think he was strutting? Do you think he had like a swagger? Of course not. It's, it's silly to even think about because he remembered well his hopeless state. That There was no posture of superiority. And when it comes to our evangelism, there is unfortunately a posture in witnessing that essentially communicates, I've arrived and you have not. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'd love to tell you about it. That can only happen in the heart of someone who has forgotten what it was like to be lost to. Who in your life, to use the language of Mark, who in your life doesn't yet know, still doesn't know, what the Lord has done for you? I want to challenge each of you to think of one person in your life here in Richmond that doesn't yet know the Lord or what the Lord has done for you and to alert them by the end of this summer. What a privilege. And here's the thing. Your story, the story you have to share about what the Lord has done for you, you realize it exceeds what this demoniac this demon-possessed man had to share. Because yours involves the cross. I mean, you may look at a story like this and think, oh man, like, here's the preacher again telling me to be an evangelist, but we're not living in Bible times. I wish I could have a dramatic encounter with Jesus like this. Friend, you realize that you are more aware in this moment of what the Lord has done for you than this guy was aware in that moment. You have the book. You have the rest of the story. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Unless you think that this world is, is too dark, that this city of Richmond is too dark for you to make a dent, just piddly old you with your feeble, stumbling efforts, too dark for you to make a dent, I want you to consider that when Jesus got back in the boat, how many seeds had he left? He had only left one seed in the Decapolis. But that single seed had
had fallen on good soil. And the reason I know that is because Jesus, at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, is going to return to this very place, and he is not just going to find this one convert. In fact, there is going to be a crowd so big that he has to perform a miracle to feed them all. Never underestimate what your faithfulness with even one seed can accomplish under the sovereign direction of God. And in conclusion, I just want to note that there is only one other man in the Gospel of Mark who is described like this demonized man. There's only one other man in Mark who is described as naked, bleeding in a tomb. His name is Jesus Christ. And even now in the story, the shadow of death is over his life. And the day will come soon when he will be beaten and mocked and stripped and executed and buried in a borrowed grave. But that cross will be his throne because on it he will conquer the ancient serpent. And friend, if you recognize the role you have played in this story that I'm talking about, the life and especially the death of Jesus Christ, if you recognize how your sin has offended this king, and if you turn to him and trust in him for mercy, these words will become your autobiography too. Paul writes in Colossians 1, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. The demonic realm, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A Boston art museum may still be missing $500 million worth of artwork. But there is no price tag that can measure the devastating effects of sin and Satan, the defacing of God's image in man. After all, what was the cost to restore it? What was the cost to restore what was lost in us? Well, it demanded history's ultimate ransom payment the blood of the king, the one who turned the tables and plundered the devil's house to set captives free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because we know that everything changes when you disembark on the shore of our lives. We praise you that you are merciful and mighty. We praise you that you are strong and tender. And we praise you that you call us in 
and you send us out. It's in your beautiful and all-sufficient name that we pray. Amen.